Well, actually, growing up, I always had what I felt like an extra funny bone in my ankle. I can remember learning how to ride a bike and falling off and getting like this really bad zingy sensation up and down my leg. You know, I started to complain to my parents and their response was obviously take me to the doctor. Eventually I got the MRI and that's when I discovered there was a growth inside my nerve that was basically making my nerve a lot bigger than it was supposed to be. I left it in until my sophomore year in high school when I was 15 and decided to have it removed. For it to be a successful parent if your child's going through something like, like this is obviously being that supportive, positive, calm, you know, person in their kids' lives, but I really think you gotta take care of yourself and 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 if however you do that, you know, your well-being, your mental health, when you're not with your child that's going through all this, so that you can be strong and focused when you're with your kid. Because um, if you're not good yourself, like you're not gonna be good for anybody else. And I think you you fight what you can't can Control, you, you always have like this anger and frustration when you should just say I got what I got and and I'm gonna make the best of it and you'd be surprised on what you can go from there you know it's like I just heard it the other day you know your your windshields a lot bigger than your rear view mirror because you got to pay attention to what you're going forward to and not if you stay focused on the rear view mirror you're just gonna crash you're not gonna go anywhere Welcome to our 92nd episode of American Reel, where this week we bring you a truly inspirational story from our guest, Dan Kosick. At the age of 15, Dan was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor in his right leg, whereby doctors recommended they amputate his leg above the knee due to the aggressive type of cancer he had. Because of the positive support of his parents and family, as well as his own positive attitude, Dan overcame his obstacle accepting his new way of life. He went on to compete in high school sports and also learned to adjust and then excel in downhill skiing. Dan was so good, he was invited to training camp where he earned a spot on the U.S. Adaptive Ski Team, appearing in the 1992 and 1996 Winter Paralympics in Nagano, Japan in Salt Lake City. Today, Dan continues to challenge himself participating in Spartan and Mutter events. He is a brand ambassador for Merrill, an American footwear company. But what I like most about Dan is the combination of his toughness and humility. 
He is truly a family man through and through, expressing that's where he receives the most joy in life. Now, anyone that's been following American Real knows that my passion is to teach you how to effectively master your story so you could find and market your authentic self. I have learned invaluable skills and tools from the stories of my near 100 guests, like Dan Kosick, and have packaged them up for you in a free ebook that is now available. Click on the link in the show notes to download your free copy today so you too could learn how to effectively master your story in 10 essential steps. So sit back and relax as I welcome the man who says, I train so I can, Mr. Dan Kosick. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Dan Kosick, who at the age of 15 was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor in your right leg. As a result, you had your right leg amputated above the knee, receiving six months of chemotherapy. You began competing in disabled sports with Team Aspire, where you found your passion to become an alpine ski racer, earning a position on the United States Adaptive Alpine Ski Team. During your tenure with the team, you were ranked amongst the top five adaptive male skiers in your category in the world. You retired from the ski team in 2002, going on to receive your master's in social work. You're currently a Merrill Brand Ambassador, a volunteer for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and you're a coach for Girls Youth Lacrosse. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is great, and um, I tell you, I've been doing a lot of research on you, uh, looking at your videos. They're very inspiring. Um, can't wait to talk about your story and everything you've done um, over the course of your life here. Um, but one of our goals here at American Real is really to inspire, empower, and enlighten people as, as they watch these videos and hear people's stories. And we use many catchphrases, uh, such, you know, trying to encourage people. To, to aspire to be all you could be. And one such phrase that comes to mind when I think of you and your story is become the best version of yourself. Does that sum up who you are? Yeah. Um, I like to think I, I represent myself, but I represent my family. And I like to think that no matter what I'm doing, uh, my kids will always be proud of who I am and that and that sort of sums it up like my intentions are usually always good and I know I make mistakes but in the when the day ends if my kids think I'm pretty awesome and proud of who I am then I think I had a good day that's awesome um, and I know last weekend you competed in the winter Spartan race yep. at, at Greek Peak and um, where you said it didn't disappoint Oh, no. I mean, for a winter event, that was exactly what I was looking for. You know, I had snow, it was cold, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's exactly what I was looking and a good challenge, a great challenge. Yeah. And tell us about this hashtag, train so I can. Uh, that came with being an Amerrill ambassador. Uh, they have different initiatives in the company. And so last year when they created the video around some of the things I was doing, they felt like it fell in line with train so I can, you know, like, why, why do you go out there and do things? And is it to just win a race or is it to just better your life? Um, and every day I train, but I'm training because I feel like I can do more. 
I can move forward, I can accomplish something new, I can go one step farther than I ever went before, um, just be a better version of me. Mm. And I love that hashtag, and I was just looking at some of the posts on there, and again, just really, really inspiring. So we're going to put that hashtag out there as well. Oh, thank you. Um, to encourage people to, to look at that. So if you can, let's start back uh, from the beginning. You're, you're a teenager, you're playing sports, um, probably, what, freshman, sophomore in high school, and um, uh, get to the point where you had some symptoms, and, and, or maybe not. Well, actually, growing up, I always had what I felt like an extra funny bone in my ankle. I can remember learning how to ride a bike and falling off and getting like this really bad zingy sensation up and down my leg, but I never really thought anything of it. Um, almost felt like something normal to me because it was always there. And then as I started growing a lot more through my teen years, um, the pain got worse, and then playing sports, it sort of lingered around, and it started to keep me up at night. So, you know, I started to complain to my parents, and their response was obviously take me to the doctors. And so the doctors who did their tests at that time, looking at things, couldn't really come up with an answer of what might be the matter. So uh, they first came up with the idea that I just needed to rest. I was, you know, I had a tendonitis or something. And so I was in a cast for six weeks at one point just to rest it, and it did nothing. Um, I explained the zinginess, but they did a nerve conduction test, and they really couldn't find anything wrong with the way my nerves were working. Um, eventually, at that time, it's, you, know, you don't get an MRI like, as quick as you can today. So eventually, I got the MRI, and that's when they discovered there was a growth inside my nerve that was basically making my nerve a lot bigger than it was supposed to be. And then from that, they decided to do a biopsy, and they went in around my ankle, and they found out you know, the growth was there. It went up my leg farther and into my foot farther. Um, they tested it. It was benign, so it wasn't cancerous at that time. And they gave me some options. They basically said I could leave this tumor in and deal with the uncomfortable sensations, or I, they could remove it. But if they removed it at that time, they said there was a good chance I'd have nerve damage, which means like I could have lop foot, I could lose control of my leg. Um, nerves don't grow back fast, so any kind of nerve damage could last years, months, maybe my entire life. So um, I left it in. I left it in until my sophomore year in high school when I was 15 and decided to have it removed. And when they went in to remove it, um, everything came out nice and clean from behind my knee all the way down to my ankle. It was 11-hour surgery up in Syracuse. And they came in and they were like, we couldn't have asked for anything better. Um, the only thing was is the day I was going to be released from the hospital, two days after the surgery, uh, two pediatric oncologists came in the room and they said there was a 2% chance of a tumor like this turning malignant. And they said it was basically in this phase of transitioning from benign to malignancy. And they didn't know what to do. So they sent me to Sloan. Uh, Sloan's like Sloan Kettering down in New York City, and that's where they came up with the game plan. And it was really simple. It was straightforward. It's like you got cancer in your leg. You don't need your leg to live. This cancer isn't a cancer you want to mess with. It's in your nerves. You can't really attack it or fight it in any other way. So uh, amputation of the leg would be the smartest and best thing to do. And then go through six months of chemo to make sure there's no other cells floating around in your body that we don't see or catch. And hopefully it never comes back. So we came up with that decision, and it was the blizzard of 1993, the day of my amputation. Uh, my mom was stuck up in the hospital when we had 48 inches of snow up in Syracuse, and uh, I watched it fall from the hospital window, um, and that was the day of my amputation. Wow. So looking back on that day, again, as a kid, you're, you're a teenager, what was going through your mind? Um, it, and this is the thing. I, I say this often. I feel like 
uh, kids are resilient, and, 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 I, and as much as you want to feel bad for sometimes kids going through difficult situations, um, teens and kids think differently than adults. You know, my, my thoughts weren't deep thoughts. They weren't really about death and cancer and, and how my life was going to change 20 years from then. It was really like, I want to be normal. Like, am I going to be able to drive? And, you know, are girls going to like me? Like, those are the kinds of things that I was thinking of. Can I play sports? Am I going to be able to run? And fortunately, the people that were in my life that surrounded me were never saying no. You know, it was always like, sure, we'll figure it out. Of course, yes, you'll drive. Yes, you can play sports. Um, not sure how, but we'll figure it out. And that's all I needed to hear. And it just kept me moving forward at that time. That's so awesome. And I understand, too, that there was uh, a make-a-wish at that oh. time. Yeah, so uh, my, during my chemo treatments, I was up at Krauss Irving in Syracuse for my chemo treatments. And they had a floor with mostly teenagers that were going through chemo treatments. And I had a, a roommate, and his name was Jerry. And Jerry and I would often be on the same uh, chemo schedule, so we'd be in the room together. And it got to you know a point. It was, it's a, a funny sort of type relationship. You know, we would cheer each other on while we'd be throwing up. You know, do the chemo and like, oh, you got more in you. You can do better. You know, and um, we would bombard the nurses and the doctors with syringes filled with water when they came in the room. We'd hide them, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember coming in one day and uh, seeing Jerry, and Jerry had like this smile on his face, and I'm like, dude, man, like, where's the smile coming from? We're about to get the chemo. Like, th this stuff sucks. And uh, and he started telling me about Make a Wish and how he got a wish granted from Make a Wish, and he was getting this computer system. And that's probably about as far as I listened because as soon as he started saying he got a wish granted from Make a Wish, um, my mind started going like, man, if I had a wish, what would I wish for? You know? And that's what's so amazing about Make a Wish is that. You, you're in this crappy time of your life and then all of a sudden you just forget about it and you start dreaming and you start like fantasizing and like having this joy being brought to your life and it doesn't just inject that into yourself but it goes into your whole family and uh, sure enough his family talks with my family and I get a wish granted and I didn't know what I wanted to do with it at that moment um, in my head I was like you know I had scuba dived before and my dad was a scuba diver and I was like maybe I want to go to Australia and, be, and like go scuba diving you know and I was like, you know, but someday I could, I could maybe make enough money and go to Australia. I'm like, what could I do that, you know, that I could never do any other time? And so I told them I was a Redskin fan. Um, I was, my dad owned a bar when I was growing up in the 83 Super Bowl when the Redskins beat the Dolphins. I, I watched Dolphin it. Fans. Oh, okay. <laughs> I watched it from start to finish. And if the Dolphins won, I probably would have been a Dolphins fan. But the Redskins won. And Riggins, you know, yes. looked amazing that game. And it just turned me into a Redskin fan. So... I said I was a Redskin fan, and I would love to do something with the Redskins. I said, I don't care if it's meeting a player, going out to dinner, I don't know. But I said, I'd love to do something with the Redskins. So they came back, and um, they basically said I was going to spend an entire week with them at their training camp. At that time, it was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, at Dickinson College. And I went down there, and I was water boy. I worked in the training room. I played uh, 93 NHL hockey with Chip Miller, their field goal kicker, every day. Uh, and just had an amazing time. And then on my trip home, I opened up a 16th uh, birthday card from them that they gave me. And I had 10 field tickets and five field passes to a Monday night game against Buffalo that I went to later that year with my friends from high school and my family. Um, and it was just an amazing experience. But my actual wish, like when I was down there, um, changed me in a lot of ways too. Uh, I remember showing up thinking, like, this is going to be tough. Like, I'm going to be this annoying teenager that's asking for way too many autographs because I'm around all my favorite players. And how am I going to keep it together and not be that annoying teenager? So I show up, like, doing everything I can to just stay sort of back. 
And sure enough, like out of you know, some guys start walking over to me, and they're like, you know, and they would be like, "Yo, what's up with your wheel?" You know, and they would see my leg, and and I would be like, "Oh, well, I have one leg, and and I lost it because of cancer, and I had just started, my hair was just starting to grow back, like I had just a fuzz." And um, I started explaining my story, and then they would be like, "Oh, you know, I have a, an aunt or mom or whoever that had cancer." And then next, you know, another guy would come up, like, "I had an uncle that lost a leg in Vietnam," you know, and and all of a sudden I'm like, "These guys are interested in me, like." Like, I have something to offer to them. These are my favorite athletes. So I, um, it, like, gave me a new sense of confidence in who I was. Like, I had a story. I had something to share. I had, like, I was, they, they thought I was a strong person. And I was, like, my favorite athletes, the biggest, strongest guys I know, thought I was strong. So it really gave me a sense of confidence when I came home and wanting to get back to life and yeah. do things. Wow. That's just an incredible story. And the Make-A-Wish Foundation which has been around now for... from Yeah, it's uh, 80... I should know this as a board member that was. I want to say like 86 was the first wish. And it, and it was a, a boy in Arizona who wanted to be a police officer. And basically they came together and they let him be a police officer for the day. Wow. And that's, that was the first wish. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but the foundation itself has grown tremendously. Oh, yeah. There's chapters throughout the country and every state every, that represent the whole entire country. Yeah. yeah. And in that moment, look, if, if that didn't happen, do you think your life may have changed a little bit? Your confidence may have changed. I mean, that sounds like at that moment it gave you some really strong confidence in yourself that maybe helped you to even get to where you are today. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, everything that has happened in my life with my leg, before my leg, and after has made me who I am today. And uh, I give it a lot of credit because I like who I am. I love who I am. And... I, I want it there, you know, like I wouldn't go back and change a thing. People ask, you know, if you could have two legs, if there was a cure for cancer and you go back and say, you're like, I don't think I would do it, you know, like I really like who I am and want to stay who I am. And it's because of all those things that's happened to me. And if something was different back then, I'd be different today. And I don't know who that is. And I'm not going to waste time thinking about it because it didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Where's your attitude come from? The positive attitude, the optimism that, that you have? Um... You always been I don't like know. I, I I guess I, I it's just me. I, I guess I don't try extra hard. I just um, believe that you get what you put out, you know. And and uh, people may say I'm lucky. Um, I you know I've never won anything fabulous, but I feel like I I get what I need and get what I want, and and I don't do it in ways you know. I just feel like I see something, I work, I try, and and then it comes true. And I feel like it's because. I'm a decent person, you know, for the most part. That's awesome. And I can't wait to talk about some of the endeavors that you've had um, over the last uh, couple of decades now. Um, but before we do that, can you just walk us through? I would love to know, and I think people are curious just in general. So um, you're an amputee. Yep. Um, walk us through a typical day. Um, well, I don't sleep with my leg. So uh, sleeping, showering. Um, swimming and skiing, those are the activities and things that I would do that wouldn't have my leg on. Um, it's held on by suction. So um, I'll get up in the morning and uh, some hopping around usually, hopping to the bathroom to get ready to get in the shower and that kind of stuff. People are like, oh, you must have amazing balance. And I'm like, uh, yeah, you got to or you fall. And, and I, I fall a lot. You know, like I, even though I do have good balance, I still fall, but I fell a lot in the beginning. And it's like you either figure it out or you fall. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of hopping, a lot of, you know, you have decent balance. Uh, 
it, it's an extra minute or two to put my leg on. Uh, things aren't perfect, you know, like ideal with, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of situations that would be a little different than someone typical, but, um, you know, it doesn't really hinder my day in any way throughout the day. And I'm at a point now where um, I'm so consistent in my health and my weight and everything else that, like, I can put my leg on first thing in the morning and it just stays on all day. And if it's fitting well, I don't really notice anything. I might get lazy and, and you'll notice more of a limp one day or one time than another time. Shoes will change up the way I walk a little bit. Um, inclines and stairs will change up things and so I might have more of a limp at one time or another. But it doesn't really hold me back from anything. Uh, and then, of course, the things like when you least expect it, you might have something go wrong with my prosthetic leg. So like I could go months and on months without any issues and then I have a really big important meeting or something happening at work and that's the morning that something breaks on my leg and it's frustrating for a minute or two but there's nothing I can do about it so I gotta take care of it. And my legs are made down in Long Island so it's either ship the leg overnight and get it there and they can fix it or hop in the car and drive four hours and they fix it but luckily it doesn't happen too often. That's good. And um, are there different attachments for different things you're going to be doing, or how does that work? Uh, insurance covers my basic everyday leg, and, uh, and, that, and that gets me through just about everything that I would need to do for a typical day. And, um, is that, is that and that's what I have on yeah, now. Okay. And, I, I, and when I wear pants, I have a, a foam cover, cover that goes over this part of the leg that has sort of the same shape as this leg that was sort of molded and, and crafted into this cover and then I'll just throw basically it's like a woman's nylon over the cover I'm not I, I never wear it with shorts so I'm not really concerned about the cosmetics of it some people and women tend to really want it to look real so there are skin tones they call them that wow. you can put over and they're like handmade painted like real hair put in you can have tattoos put on them um, veins everything you can imagine you know to make them look real and some people really want that and need that um, for me this is like I, I love showing it off, you know. It, it, it's a, a BMW, Mercedes, at least, if not more. When you think about what it's cost to, you know, wear, I'm like, it doesn't have the heated seats and the bows, but, um, you know, I might as well show <laughs> right. it off, you know. That's right. Um, so this is my everyday leg. This is what you know insurance will hopefully cover. I have some troubles with insurance at times when new technology comes about because insurance doesn't really want to pay for new stuff. They're like. If you've been wearing this for the last eight years, then why would you need something better? Right. Um, and, and for me, it's like, well, I don't want to have more back pain or whatever. So it goes through a, a process. Uh, the activities, biking, running, and those kinds of things, and when I played lacrosse, I needed a whole different leg for that. And insurance won't cover those things, um, typically, because that's not considered you know, a normal thing or a it's medical necessity. Right. Yeah. So. Fortunately, uh, a step ahead prosthetics where I go um, knows that I enjoy my high, high activity level. I get out, I do a lot of, you know, in, in my relationship with Merrill, uh, you know, I do get some publicity and they, they help me. So they help me with a running leg and they've actually given me spare parts because some of the events I do, I can beat up and almost destroy a leg in one event and I need, you know, to switch things out throughout the event. So, you know, it's like a little pit crew, I gotta have my tools. Um, and carry a lot of extra things with me because um, you never know what can happen. You know, a can of WD-40 and some duct tape and Allen wrench and whatever else I can think of, you know, in a backpack for sure. Incredible. And talking about technology, where has the technology come from when you were, you know, um, 15 yep. till it is today? 
Um, there's been some advancements. Uh, the biggest advancement is the microprocessor knee. Um, when I first started, it was a hydraulic unit that had a manual dial that you would control the, the flexion and the resistance that you get in the flexion extension of the knee. Now it's, it's programmed through a microprocessor so that it reads, basically, and it's set through a, a program. And you'd think it, like, you know, would have more to it, but I mean, it just makes the gate much smoother and, and more controlled, and a little bit more safety too, and that's the big thing, especially for newer amputees, it, it provides more safe, um, uh, I should say, it provides, um, I guess the safety so that like with stairs and, and things like that, it won't give out and uh, you know help people from less falls or preventing falls and stuff. Um, the huge thing with technology, it's wars. I mean, the the legs that I was wearing when I first became an amputee really came about because of the Vietnam War and stuff like that, and there was advancements through that, and then there, it sort of slowed down. And then with the Iraq War and everything, and then you have a lot of new amputees and the military getting involved, all of a sudden you get new technology again. And so there are some military-grade things out there that are starting to get back, um, coming out to the public. Uh, and it's still in that process, but it's really wars that, that push the technology advancements. Wow. And I just have to tell you, I mean, your outlook, your attitude, your optimism, I mean, you are who you are, and you, you don't know any different, but really for our listeners, I think your story is incredibly uplifting. And, you know, I just think about, okay, people could go one way or the other. Mm -hmm. You could be sorry for yourself, you could be down and depressed, and not do you know not be motivated you went the other way and we haven't even gotten into all that yet so yeah. I, I want to talk about that but just uh, I commend you for Thank you. for just being who you are because it's just awesome I can't wait for our listeners to hear more more of your story here great thanks so look let's go into um, what you call the growth years um, just learning to be a team you know learning to adjust um, you went back and you played sports. Yeah. Um, this started very, at, at that moment for you, you never really looked back, you just looked forward. Yeah, I mean, um, each sport or activity that I did before and after, you know, has a, a similar or a unique story to it, I guess you would say. Um, football, I did not go back to playing on the team. I, I, I was a trainer for a year after I came back. Um, my dad was a big football player. And football was a big part of my life, but it was one sport that I pretty much knew I didn't, I didn't think I could get on the field again. Um, and some of it, too, is time. Like, I was basically, after chemo, coming back as a junior, learning this, and it wasn't like I had years to figure, out, figure it all out and play the sports and, and everything else. It was like I had two years left of high school athletics. Um, lacrosse was one thing I really wanted to play. I was a goalie before I lost my leg. And I really felt like that was the position. If I was going to be competitive again, that would be the position I could come back to. So that worked out for me. Um, and you did it. Yeah, yeah. So like the first year was definitely a growth year. I mean, uh, a lot of goals given up. I, I didn't look very well out there. I, sometimes I would fall in the crease and the ball would roll right by me and go in. And um, you just somehow, adjust, right? yeah, just figuring out how I was going to use this leg and, and, and move around in here and basically manage the position successfully. Um, I wish I could tell you how and why, but I just never quit. You know, I, I knew it would probably get better, and it did get better. And so by my senior year, I mean, I, I split the starting position. We were ranked in the state. We were 18-2, and two. Um, and it, it was fun, you know. Like, I really enjoyed it, and, and I felt like I was a part of the team. I wasn't, like, 
the feel-good story of like, you know, he's here and everything else, like I actually could contribute to the team. Yeah. Um, swimming was a different thing. Um, I swam before I lost my leg, and our team was really small. And uh, when I, after I got done with chemo, I was really weak and, and very thin. Um, I went from, uh, when I had two legs at 15, I was about 150 pounds. And then after the amputation and a few months of chemo, I was below, I was about 95 pounds um, at my lowest. And to give you some reference, like I'm about 180 now. So I was half, half. the size of what I was. And um, because I knew the swim team was really small and I knew the coach, I went to the coach after I finished chemo and I said uh, to Coach Verity, I said, you know, do you mind if I, I just swim with you guys? I don't want to compete. I don't want to be really like on the team. I just want to swim with the team because I feel comfortable here. It's only a few guys. And swimming is one activity that I felt like would get me back in the shape and I didn't really have to worry about the prosthetic part of it. It was just, you know, I took the leg off, I got in the pool and I just worked. Um, and I knew the eyes were on me. So as soon as I got in that pool, even if it was just a few guys, like people were staring at me like, was he going to be all right? Is he going to drown? Do you know, how's it going to work? And I just worked harder, you know, like I, because people were watching me, um, I knew I worked harder and I ended up, my times ended up getting faster with one leg than I did with two legs. And I think it was just because my work ethic changed. Like all of a sudden I cared and I didn't, you know, I didn't sure. want to look sloppy. Um, and then eventually the coach is like, Dan, our team is tiny. Like, why don't you just compete with us? Like another guy would definitely help out. You're not going to be like the slowest guy out there. So I started swimming with the team and, you know, and, I had fun, I enjoyed it, and it's just a great activity, and I, I still do it three days a week before work, um, wow. so that was the swimming part of it. And in the middle of all that, I got introduced to skiing. Uh, that's, how, it. That's, how, that's how you got introduced to, to it? To skiing? Yes. Um, well, no, I was, uh, I call myself a spore uh, before I lost my leg, which is S-P-O-R-E, a stupid person on runway equipment. Um, so I would be, you know, at 14 when I had two legs, if I could go skiing, um, I would get the rental equipment and go as fast as I could down the hill and not know how to stop and have a yard sale at the bottom of the hill. And that was me. Um, I did ski club. It was usually my Christmas present from my parents every year. Um, I really liked skiing, but no one in my family skied. It wasn't something like we did, we grew up doing or anything like that. Um, but after I lost my leg, I met another amputee. Um, actually, my aunt ran into him at, a, at the ski shop at Burgers. And she told him how I was going to be losing my leg, and he wanted to meet me. So he came to my house, and we talked. Actually, him and a, another amputee, a woman. And they just started answering all these questions. And one thing that came up was, he's like, do you like skiing? And I said, I love skiing, but I don't, I'm not really good at it. And he goes, well, guess what? He's like, there's discount you know, skiing and everything else for disabled skiers. He's like, you write to a ski company, you're only skiing on one ski. He's like, you write to the warranty department, they'll send you a new ski, like one ski. You only need one boot. And next thing you know, I'm like, oh, yeah. it's like, this doesn't cost that much now. And I turned 16 and I got my driver's license. So I got this discounted you know, season pass up at Greek Peak. I was going up to the adaptive program. I had some new equipment and I started to learn how to ski. And every time I went out there, like the feeling of going fast down the hill and now learning how to turn and stop and everything else, I couldn't get enough of it. And eventually they were like, you look like you really like it, the people that were helping me. And they're like, guess what? There's some coaches who teach disabled ski racing that were coming from Colorado down to Pennsylvania in the Poconos for like a camp. And they, they're like, do you want to go? So they sent me to this camp and I met the coaches and they said, you got potential if you want to do it, you know, like it's up to you. And so I came home and I told my parents that I wanted to do it. And there was a community fundraiser and they had a spaghetti dinner and we raised, um, I want to say three or $4,000. Wow. 
and uh, I, got, I went to New Zealand for a summer, and I did a four-week training uh, race camp in New Zealand. I came home from the race camp, and I told my family, I said, I want to make the U.S. ski team, and I want to go to the 2002 Paralympics. That's my goal. And this was like 1995-ish or so. I think I was just a senior in high school when that happened. And that was my goal from that point forward with skiing. Unbelievable. And I want to go there, but first, I can't help but think about your parents. So, yeah. you know, we have, my wife and I have two kids, 16 and 12, soon to be 13. You were right there, you know, yeah. when, when this happened. So... I give them a lot of credit. Number one, for allowing you to just do what you wanted to do, take these risks, and not having the fear. Because I think most parents, myself included, yeah. we have that fear for our kids. And what do you, do you think about that? Like, oh, that, that, that was a huge... So much now. Yeah. Um, never really crossed my mind until I became a dad. Um, and then the moment I became a dad, it was like... How did they do it? Yeah. Um, and now my oldest is 14, and I think about it all the time. And I just, it like chokes me up thinking about it. Sure, yeah. sure. Because uh, they were strong. They were really strong. And, you know, my mom and my dad weren't together. Um, I had step-parents and stuff like that. But they, there was never battles. There was never, like, who, you know, like, this isn't good for them and, you know, anything like that. And if it was, it was hidden somehow. Mm -hmm. And I feel like... I work with kids, and usually you, you, a kid catches things and, and, sure. and picks up on a lot of things, and they, they were just always solid, always strong. Wow. No, and I, 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 again, I think, and it helps, like, talking about this stuff, if, if people are in, you know, certain situations where their kids may be going through something pretty significant, yeah. then you have to let them go. You have to let them be who, who they want. Who they are without that fear of holding them back yeah because again that could change the course of someone's life yeah I had I had coaches and there were people in my life that definitely were uncomfortable with me and and what I was doing um you could tell you know like I even had comments like you only got one good leg left like you might not want to do this because you know you don't want to mess that up um and it, it, luckily, it wasn't what I heard a lot of. It was more I heard, do whatever you want to do. You know, go out and try it. Um, I, now that I'm a parent, now I look at it and everything else, I, I think the, the key would be for to be a successful parent if your child's going through something like, like this is obviously being that supportive, positive, calm you know, person in their kids' lives. But I really think you got to take care of yourself. And, and, and if however you do that, you know, your well-being, your mental health, when you're not with your child that's going through all this so that you can be strong and focused when you're with your kid. Because um, if you're not good yourself, like, you're not going to be good for anybody else. And so I think you sort of got to have this selfish sort of mentality, like, I'm going to take care of myself and get myself healthy and strong, and then I can be great for my kids. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I sort of think that way with my own life, with my own kids and my wife. You know, I tell my, my daughters on a daily basis, like, you know, I, you know, dad has to do some things because it makes me feel good. And then when I'm good, I'm a good husband. And when mom and I are good together, we're good parents. And it's better to always have that sort of happening instead of me putting someone else forward and then me not being healthy and happy and all that kind of stuff. Right. No, and I think that communication with the kids is good, too, because now they could hear you verbalizing that. Yeah. So when they get older, you know, they'll remember these things. So they, they pass those life hope. lessons on. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about the U.S. Adaptive Ski Team. So you told us about how you got into it. Um, incredible. Now, 
it's not easy to qualify, right? So how <laughs> tell us about that whole I process. Wish, um, I wish I knew exactly how it worked. Um, I, and today, I know you have to have certain races where you like you finish with certain kinds of results, and there's a point system and everything else. Um, all I know is I was given it all I had, going to as many races as I could, able-bodied and disabled races, to be the best ski racer I could be, and I wanted to make the team. And in 1997, um, it, was, it was in the summer months, because I remember being home uh, from school and getting a phone call from the head coach and basically saying, we'd like you to be a part of the team. And so it's the 97, 98 year was my, the year I got invited to be on the team. And it was sooner than I expected. I didn't expect to qualify and make the team so soon, um, which changed everything, you know? And, and like, like all of a sudden it was like, I wasn't on my own. I now had like a team that I was traveling with and training with, I didn't have to find my own training. Um, and the other huge thing that I didn't expect was now I was able to qualify and go to Japan, which I didn't think was going to happen. And I went to Japan more thinking I was going to be an alternate on the team because I really didn't have much uh, international racing experience at that time. And I went there not thinking I was going to race in any race, basically being, because you only can put three um, individuals per nationality into a, an event. And we already had five extremely strong males, well, uh, me and four other strong males in the, on the team. And three of them, I thought for sure, you know, would be in these races and I would just be sitting back in case someone got the flu or, you know, a fluke injury. Um, but the downhill events, there's training runs and everyone could do the training runs. And so I had nothing to lose and I went and did the training runs and still didn't really think anything was gonna change. And after the second training run, my coach pulls me into the McDonald's in the Olympic Village and says, Dan, we're putting you in the downhill. You look really good. And I was like, okay, like, this is amazing. Like, calling home, I don't know what time it is, but guess what? I'm racing, like, you know, the next, you know in two days. Um, so I got put in the downhill. And I was at the back of the pack and still, once again, not thinking there was many expectations. Just give what I had. I feel like they are already packing up the race because I was so far in the back of the pack. Um, finished that race and I ended up being uh, two hundredths of a second out of third and two tenths of a second out of second and so close and all of a sudden expectations did change. The coaches, myself, the people around me were like, man, in four years this guy is going to be good. Like if he's this good, this close, especially in the downhill which is uh, a prestigious event with the speed, you know, people, it's really um, an honorable event to place in and do well in. Um, you know, it, it takes someone to go as fast as you can um, down that hill. Uh, it's not a technical event. Uh, it's, I don't, people don't know the differences between certain races, but slalom and giant slalom are more technical, more turning. Giant slalom and super G are considered speed, which is really just how fast can you get down through the certain, the, the, short, the turns that you have. Um, so anyways, I left Nagano thinking uh, in four years, I'm winning four gold. Like, that was sort of like, I was like, there's no way I'm not. Like, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but things change, you know. And But I can tell you, in the next four years, I gave it all that I had to, to try to win four gold. And so, that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. And tell us about that race, that, that downhill. How long does a race like that last? Um, a typical, typical downhill in a disabled event like that is usually about two minutes mm. um, from start to finish. Uh, I was clocked actually the fastest racer um, through the speed trap, which was uh, about 80 miles an hour. Oh um, so, you know, like it's uh, it's very quick, it's very fast. It's it's about living on the edge and 
and knowing at any moment, like if you really want to do well, you're right there where it's either a disaster or you're going to do really well. And I've had many opportunities where I did well and other opportunities where it went too far and I was an explosion, you know, like everything going everywhere and surprising I didn't have any serious injuries though. Wow. And take us through that race. So you're, tell us about it. You're, you're, you have one leg. Yep. And you're going as fast as you can. Tell us, like, walk us through. I want to feel what it's like going down that hill. <laughs> I'll try. Um, so uh, the funny thing is, is I was, which was very rare, I was very relaxed to, before the race because I was so far back that, um, and I realized, like, I was like, I'm just lucky to race. Like, I'm not really thinking much is going to happen. I think I actually fell asleep up at the Star Shack. Ski racing is a lot to do with hurry up and wait. Um, so you're up at the, you have to be up at the top early and ready, but you just got to wait for your start to come around. And if you're starting a hundred and something and, and the racers are going every minute or two, and then there's pauses for course work and stuff like that, you know, you could be up there for hours, um, and just waiting for your, your start. Um, I, I ski with outriggers and people like to say like, oh, are those the poles with skis on the ski tips? Um, they're actually like a forearm crutch, and at the and there is a ski tip on the bottom of the forearm crutch, and it has some movement to it. And what they do is they allow you to touch the ground for a little bit longer period of time than you could with the ski pole, um, but you cannot lean on it. Like you cannot put much force on the ground because it'll just slide out from underneath you. But what it does is it allows you to put it on the ground, and it will stay with you as with a ski pole. If you put it in and plant it. You're, it'll force you, like it'll turn you and jerk you around and then you lose your balance a lot easier. Um, so you w use those and you have a, a tuck position with those where they're out in front of you and they break the wind. So you try to hold that tuck as much as you can, especially in a, or in a speed event like the downhill. Um, you usually have, or you should, and especially in the downhill, have the course completely memorized through inspections. Um, so you can visualize it, see it from start to finish. You know what's coming up because when you're going that fast, you have to always be thinking and seeing much farther than what you actually can see um, to be prepared and set yourself up for it. So if you need to check a little bit of speed because you know that certain things are coming up, you do it then because if you go too much or too fast or too straight into a certain area, it ends up catching up to you and then the whole race is ruined. Um, I remember just going and like feeling like nothing was going to stop, like, stop me. Like, I just feel, you know, like something was pulling me down the hill. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it, it just felt so good. And, and then stopping and almost, like, not even thinking about, like, whoa, what's my time? Like, I must have done good. And then all of a sudden, like, my teammates and coaches were there. were like, that was pretty awesome, you know? And, like, looking up and then all of a sudden on the big jumbotron, seeing my name up there um with the top five racers you know so i was awesome. like wow like there i am you know and That's uh so cool. and i you know smiling ear to ear sure. probably well today still smiling ear yeah. to ear because of it yeah what a big moment you do this for what another uh couple of years yeah so um my my wife is my high school sweetheart and uh we she went to bu played soccer and when we were in high school and I figured I was going to go to Broome and ski and try to travel and whatever, but still be in town. And she decided she was going to Binghamton. We decided to start dating in high school. Um, and so we, we kept our relationship strong um, through all this. Uh, she would visit me out west when she could. And sometimes we'd have races in the east. And probably, you know, in right around 2000, it was sort of like we, we talked and it was like, I'm going to do this until 2002. And... When we're done, hopefully, you know, we, we start our careers, 
maybe get married and start a family and all that kind of stuff. So that was sort of like the plan after ski racing. So I gave it all I had until 2002. Uh, Salt Lake City was another amazing uh, experience. I went into the downhill or hoping to go into downhill thinking I was going to improve upon that fourth. Uh, almost the opposite happened. Uh, you have to have two training runs completed or they hold two training runs, but you have to complete at least one training run to compete in the downhill. Uh, one was canceled due to weather and the other one I crashed. So I actually was not, uh, I was taken out of the downhill for the, super, or for the Salt Lake games. So I didn't race in it. And then um, I had a seventh in the Super G. I had the fourth in the Giant Slalom, which was my worst event, and I think a sixth in the Slalom. Um, so I had, you know, top ten finishes, but I never improved upon that fourth. People ask, like, you know, does that eat you up inside? Uh, it really doesn't, because one, um, I set my goals of doing it and giving it all I had until 2002, and that's what I did. I, I can't look back and say, I could have done this differently. I could have trained more. I could have done more here or there. I, I gave what I had. It, I, I, what was in my control, I, I used. And you can't control the people you race against. And who knows, you know, the new rookies coming up that all of a sudden come out of nowhere, I can't control that. And that's what I got. And so I walked away with it in 2002. And my wife and I got married in 2003. And our first daughter came in 2004. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Tell us about your kids. Um, they're two girls, and they're amazing. Um, they're so different, <laughs> and they they keep me busy. You know, they uh, I don't. It's I don't I, being a parent. I mean, you don't know it unless you're a parent. And and I every day I'm so grateful to have them in my life. Um, I'm not the easiest dad. You know, I'm a tough dad. Uh, and they would tell you that, but I'm a, I'm a fun dad too, and or at least I hope they would say those things. Um, I work with kids, you know, on a daily basis as a school social worker, and and that probably doesn't work in their favor. Um, <laughs> I don't trust many kids, if any, um, including my own. So you know, they gotta really earn their their trust with me and that kind of stuff. And I lay down the law, and um, but I I'm always looking for opportunities that we can do together, and and not with just my kids, but my wife too, and and grow as a family. Uh, and experiences, you know, I think experiences is what makes you wealthy in life. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, if I can get them nice looking things, I think it really matters. Can we go somewhere and go visit somewhere together and see this together and do it together? And so I come home with some crazy ideas and they have to keep me in check because I would love to bring them to some of the things in, that I do and have them do some of the things I do. And I, then I got to realize not everybody gets excited as I do about certain things. <laughs> So what are some of the things that you do as a family that maybe the average family doesn't do? Um, well, everything. I mean, we've done the Disney stuff like four times, I feel like, you know, we, you know going to Disney. And, but my, I've changed, you know, I'm, I, I've really become more of an outdoors person and yeah. the hiking and stuff. And I, I really want them to experience and, and embrace and find gratitude in nature, nature. like I, I'm having now. And so last year, you know, we went down to the Gulf Shore Beach. We drive, we do a lot of driving. And uh, on the way home, we, you know, stop at the Smoky Mountains and, and do some hiking and some whitewater rafting and stuff like that. Um, they, there's, well, my oldest isn't skiing too much now, but my youngest is still skiing with me. Uh, 
this year, my really excited is we have a, a family vacation planned this summer, and we're going to fly into Vegas, but we're running a car, and we're driving for two weeks to six national parks. So we're going to go to the Grand Canyon and Arches and Bryce and Capitol Reef and Zion and visit them. And then I told them, I said, you know, we'll, we'll do the hike in, and, if you, you know, we'll ride some horseback, do some horseback riding and, and all that kind of fun stuff. And I said, if you guys are awesome with it all, then we get back to Vegas. We'll go see a show that you guys want to see as like you're you're the cherry on the top or whatever but um yeah it's just like the perfect trip or vacation for me isn't um it isn't really just me or just me and my wife it's the four of us doing something together dan tell us about obstacle course racing tough mudder some people think it's pretty crazy because you go and you pay money to get pretty beat up and dirty and muddy um so uh, I, I want to say it's right around 2010-11 it sort of started to come about. And it was, uh, not, it was just probably 2011-ish or so that someone told me about it and thought I would enjoy it just because of they knew who I was. And I said, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't have a prosthetic leg that I could use or beat up and, and do this kind of stuff. But it, they, they planted the seed in my head, and I was like, you know, but maybe, and like how, you know. And then I started to talk to my prosthetist, the guy who makes my legs, and I was like, you know, do you think there's any chance you could make a leg that I could try this with? Um, and so eventually, in 2013, um, I felt like I, I, my prosthetist made me a leg that he felt like I could use and beat up and try it with. And not only was it that, it, there was a good eight months or more of, having to get in shape again like I, I was I've always been active and in shape but running as an amputee is the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life just going for a run and and when I got that running leg to go running I, I remember I went down to the local track and I couldn't run more than one time around the track and I was like holy crow that's hard and I was like but I'm gonna come back in two days and try to see if I can get two times around you know that kind of sort of mentality and then eventually it was like, oh, I got two miles down at the track. Let's see if I can go run two miles through the streets, you know, like some hills and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just grew on it. And eventually I could, I could run anywhere from three to four miles, I felt like, which almost took me eight months to figure out how to do. And it was exhausting, like the hardest thing that I feel like. That's why I love running because there's nothing that beats me up and makes it there's nothing as hard as running for me than anything else out there. And when you say hard, it's not hard as in from a you can't catch your breath hard, it's adjusting, right, with, with being able to run? It's, it's just um, an activity, like, I mean, my heart rate, and it, it's exhausting. You know, I'm, I'm using anywhere from 60 to 80% more energy than someone with two legs for just normal daily activities. Um, so it's, you know, it's walking more around. of a toll on your, on your body. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the scientific you know, this behind it, but like me going on a mile run is, is probably more like someone else going on a five mile run. And, um, and then when you throw in hills and everything else, it, it, it even adds more into it. Um, it's just not easy. And, and that's why I'm drawn to it because it's, it beats me up. It's not easy. And it makes, it's a challenge. You and, like a challenge. Yeah. And I'm not going to let it win. So, uh, you know, one mile turns into two miles, and two miles turns into three, and three turns into five, and five turns into ten, and eventually I, I did an event and did 50. Um, but so 2013, I, I had a friend that convinced me to try an, an obstacle course race, which Tough Mudder, which is a brand, a company. There's several out yeah. there. Um, it's a 10-mile obstacle course race where you go 10 miles through just 
mud and they build some crazy things in the middle of fields and you climb and you jump and you even get electrocuted um, through certain areas. Uh, yeah, you get, you get zapped pretty hard. Oh um, I'm about two miles from the end of the event. I have like a sort of like a tire tread epoxy to the bottom of my running leg and it fell off. And, uh, and now I have just a very smooth piece of carbon. And luckily it's in mud, it's soft mud. So, cause rocks and pavement uh, carbon would just shatter and, and splinter. Uh, but I was able to basically tiptoe for like the last two miles because it was like having an ice skate on that leg. Uh, I finished and it was probably within, I don't know, two, three hours that I decided that I was going to do this again next year, um, but I was going to make it a lot better uh, and, and, and not finish in that same way. So I finished and signed up for one a year later. <laughs> and I went back a year later and I did much better and I said, that was great, I want to go back again. So I went back again a year later and then it got to, you know what, this year, instead of just doing one, how about I do like three? And then the people who run those events started to see my interest and my excitement for it. And eventually I got invited to do some obstacle testing um, at this private location down in the Poconos for Tough Mudder. Um, met some other avid obstacle course racers, but these people were like, there was one guy there had completed 100 Tough Mudder events. Um, and I was like, why? Like, I've done like seven, I think, at that time, or maybe not even. And uh, I'm talking to these people, and I'm having a blast. They're like, this is a, an adult playground. And just swinging on swings that are 30, 40 feet above the ground. But there's airbags underneath you. So I'm like, I'm not going to get hurt. Like, I land on an airbag, you know? And they, they had to pry me off. Like, I'm there all day having fun. And I'm about to leave that event, and one of the guys is like, so we're going to see you at Worlds? And I was like, what's Worlds? And he's like, in November, world's toughest. And I'm like, what is it? And he's like, 24 hours. And I'm like, 24 hours, he's like, nonstop? And he's like, yeah. He's like, you go 24 hours nonstop. You see how many miles you can get in 24 hours in these loops. And I was like, you're crazy. But he planted the seed. And I ended up doing two worlds. Um, Tough Mudder made a video on me. And they, you know, about, uh, it, they called it Finish Strong. And they, it, was, it went sort of viral, and that was really cool. And that was uh, an eye-opening experience, and that like opened up more doors, I guess, for everything. Um, but all that like just started to you know grow, you know, and it was like went from running one mile or one time around the track to you know this far and then this far. So it was always like, if I can go one step, why can go one step farther? Awesome! Wow! And you're still doing these events? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So when's your next? Um, I, I don't, the, my next official registered event, I'm actually doing the Seneca 7 with a team uh, coming up in April, which is the 77-mile race with seven people around Seneca Lake. Um, the next obstacle course race, I'm thinking I'll probably do, there's a Tough Mudder event in Philadelphia in May. Um, I haven't, like, like, honestly, like, my kids at their age right now, one is in dance competitively, the other one's in soccer and lacrosse. And I have to wait to see when their tournaments are and all that kind of stuff. I missed, actually, one of my daughter's tournaments for soccer last weekend because at the Spartan. Um, it was the last second thing I didn't realize. Um, so I try to hold out on my plans because, like I said, I, I, you know, there's times I'm selfish, but I also I want to be sure. there for my kids and not miss it. So they come first, make sure I can meet all the family requirements and, and all the things that our family does, and then I'll fill in the gaps with the stuff I like to do. Very cool. So you talked about being a Merrill ambassador. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I love their product, um, love their shoes. And um, 
we talked a little bit off camera, I believe, uh, about it might have been early on in the conversation, but tell us about that relationship and how it's made some impact on your life and, and the life of others. Well, um, you know, before two years ago, I w if you mentioned Merrill, I would have just said, yeah, they make some hiking shoes. Uh, but Merrill had a partnership with Tough Mudder, and I became a Tough Mudder ambassador for a year, uh, which represent, you know, I represented the brand. And as an ambassador for Tough Mudder and their partnership with Tough Mudder, I got some product. And, and they, they treated me nicely, and they you'd give me some shoes to run the races in and all that kind of stuff. And I was really grateful for it. And then uh, in 2017, my, I had a big goal, and I wanted to complete 50 miles by myself at World's Toughest Mudder. Um, and that was my focus. So throughout 2017, every, I feel like, waking moment I had that wasn't either with my family or with work was how am I going to get 50 miles at World's Toughest Mudder. Um, and World's Toughest came in November of 2017, and I reached my goal, and I hit my 50 miles, and I felt like I got where I wanted to, and I was like, I got to move on to something different. And a new opportunity came about at that time. I was invited to be a part of a, a group of climbers, elite amputee athletes, to climb a mountain uh, in Ecuador, and that was going to be my new focus for 2018. So I actually called up uh, the person who was, you know, really nice to me through Merrill, and I just wanted to say thank you, and then say, hey, thank you for supporting me these last couple of years with some shoes and things like that for the events. Um, but I'm changing my focus this year. I'm not going to be doing as much obstacle course racing. I'm still doing these events, but my focus now is I want to climb this 19,347-foot volcano in Ecuador with a group of amputees for a bigger purpose, and it was to raise money and awareness for amputees who don't have access to prosthetics because 80% of the world's amputees don't have access to prosthetics. And when I shared that with this person through Merrill, they were like, this fits our brand better than any obstacle course racing. And they're like, we would love to make our relationship bigger than what it is. So they, we talked and they decided to do some filming and some uh, interview me with some things and they created this video, I Train So I Can. Um, and they helped support me through all of that through 2018 and I successfully reached that summit in September of 2018 and they keep me on as an ambassador right now which I'm thrilled to be a part of. Uh, testing products, getting new things, trying new things um, and not only you know are they supporting me but now that I've been with them for a little bit um, they're not just making shoes and apparel they're they're really about breaking boundaries, and there's a lot of people that don't know what nature has or what's out there in nature. There's a, lot, there's, there's a very small population that access our state parks and our national parks, and they're about making it a more of a diverse thing, where you know, if you have a disability, you know, it, it just whoever you are, like, learn about nature and get outside, and that's what they want to do, and that's why they have me as an ambassador. They feel like I can break those boundaries or help break those boundaries and get more people enjoying nature. Wow, it's such a good fit, uh, you and that company, and uh, congratulations Thank you. On, on doing that in Ecuador. I mean, that's just incredible that uh, you and the team were able to accomplish that uh, climb. And um, yeah, it just seems that, and I saw the video, by the way, okay. uh, that, was, that was really well done and um, very touching as well. So uh, just an incredible part of who you are, you know, yeah. being able to accomplish that. Um, talk about this range of motion project. Uh, is that separate from everything else we've we've discussed? 
Yeah, so... <laughs> you have a lot going on. I'm yeah. trying to keep it all... Well, it, it's like it's just one thing leads into the next thing and whatever. Yes. Um, you know, it, yeah. Um, so I was doing my obstacle course racing, and people, you know, Tough Mudder made their video with me and all that kind of stuff. And eventually I had a friend who was a part of Range of Motion Project, or ROM, and she actually was on the ski team when I was on the ski team. And she saw the things I was doing with obstacle course racing. And she said, you know, she's like, I know climbing mountains not the same thing as an obstacle course race, but there's this organization called ROMP, and I think you would really enjoy being a part of it. And I think you would enjoy the challenge of climbing the mountain. They try to climb a mountain every year. Um, it, it's all weather dependent and everything else. But they, they have this focus of climbing a mountain every year. Would you like to be a part of it? And at that time, it was in 2017, I said, I, I really can't this year. I said, my focus is getting 50 miles at World's Toughest. And I really, as much as it's, a, it's an awesome physical activity, I need to stay focused on what I wanted to achieve that year. So I sort of put it off to the side. And then the moment I hit 50 miles, I got a phone call. It was like less than a week after I hit the 50 miles. And it was like, how about this year you try it? You know, And I was like, I don't have anything in the books yet for wow. you know planning for this year, so yeah. And and I really changed my focus and embraced the whole different sort of challenge and goal. Um, my training went from uh, you know strictly obstacle course racing to now doing some big hikes and and putting some weight on my pack, you know, on my back, and doing these uh, hikes. I basically Googled what are the hardest hikes you can do in the East Coast and went down the list and started checking them off and saying, I'm going to go do this one this month and this one next month and this one next month. And, you know, I, I had friends that were into it too. So, you know, one month I did Devil's Path, which took me about 19 hours to do. And then the next month, the Great, um, the great Range and did Marcy up in the Adirondacks. And then the next month, uh, the Presidential Traverse in a day. It took me like 18 hours. But, um, and I was finding new experiences and just enjoying it. And all of it was to be focused on reaching 19,347 feet down in Ecuador, which is taller than any place you can go here in the States. Um, but I was ready when I got there. And uh, 19 out of the 24 of us that attempted the, the summit made it. Um, it's, it's not about that they couldn't get to the summit, the ones that didn't make it. It's really about timing. Um, you have to reach the summit and get off the glacier before high noon because the crevasses become unstable in the snow. So if you don't reach certain points at certain times, you really have to stop and turn around and come back. So um, I got up there around 6.15 in the morning. We, some, we left at 11.30 at night and climbed through the night uh, with our headlamps and got up there right at sunrise, watched an amazing sunrise at the top of this mountain. I stayed about 45 minutes up there and then took my time getting off the mountain. Wow. What was the feeling like when you were on top? Uh, overwhelming. Like, you know, anytime you, you set your focus and your goal to accomplish something and, and you put a good year or more of, like, this is what I want to do, and then you reach it, 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 you get overwhelmed with emotions. At the end of that Merrill video, it's really funny, the, the producers of that video had a great sense of humor and was adding in little things that if you listen closely you'll catch and at the very end it fades away and it says Merrill but if you have it loud enough you hear uh, I think I might cry uh, I, you know I say and and you can see it like um, there's definitely the tears you know they're coming and 
and some of it was because the sulfuric acid coming up from, or sulfuric gas coming up from the active volcano actually burns your eyes and your lungs quite a bit. And so you get up to the top and you're like, whoa, and your eyes are watering. And then next you know, you're hit with this emotion and everyone's just like, you know, almost looks like you're sobbing because you're like, we did it, you know? That's incredible. Yeah. What's the top like? When you say you're at the top, is it, is it, how big is it? You know, how big is the peak? Is it, are we talking? It makes everything look small. Um, that top was, you know, the, the, the place to move around was not much more bigger than this room really? where you could move it's around. Small. Yeah. Um, you know, because it, it's, I mean, there are some spots you look over and it's 3,000 feet straight down almost like, and then other spots it was just a gradual decline, but you could see forever. And the amazing thing about Ecuador is you have the Andes Mountains, um, and on one side of the Andes Mountains you have the rainforest, and you have a lot of moisture that comes off the rainforest. And then on the other side it's sort of a desertish type, you know, climate because that um, the moisture and stuff from the rainforest hits the Andes and sort of stops. And then on the other side it's very dry. And then you get the the coast on the Pacific Ocean, and then off the coast they have the Galapagos Islands. You know, like so you go to Ecuador. It's not a very big country, but you have an amazing, you know, diversity in, in uh, their terrain and stuff. So you're up there, and you can look forever, and you see the rows of the peaks, you know, in one way, and you can see all the valleys and all everything low. You know, you can't really see clearly, but, like, it's just wow. And then you turn the other way, and you just see clouds because that's all the moisture that hit the mountain range, and they stop, and you just see the peaks coming up through the clouds. So it's like... And it almost looks like you're walking on the clouds when you're on that part of the, the mountain um, because you're just coming up right through there. And then on the other part, it's just like, whoa, that's how far high we are up? Yeah. Were you ever in any danger doing the climb? Um, I mean, there's always risk. I mean, there's risk for me driving home from here. But uh, I never felt like I was in that much danger. I think the greatest danger was um, there's crevasses which are these large cracks in sort of the glacier and you have to get over them and and we hiked up in the middle of the night they look sort of like just dark black things that we have to step over some were big some were small um, when I say you know big like they may only be like a foot wide and other times they're you got to give a little bit of a hop to get over them um, but we were tied in threes okay. um, so there's there's a you know a plan you have ice axes and stuff like that so uh, one person the guide are, would lead and he would get solid and stable and then so we would follow and so if someone slipped or fell or would fall possibly into one he was able to hold us in because we'd be tied together um, it was funny because going up you never thought anything of it you're just going 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 you're looking forward to the top you're staying focused on the top and then you hit the top and you're coming down and it was just the most beautiful sunny day coming down, but you saw everything you went over and all of a sudden everything got scary. Sure. And you were like, I stepped over that last night? And there was like one one section where you definitely thought, of, like it took us a few minutes, like let's just stand here for a second before we do this because really? it was like one little foothold where we had to step with our crampons and you're like, that's pure ice, but you have these two inch sort of spikes on the bottom of your boots. And you're like, is it going to stay? Is it going to hold? And you step there, and then you leap. And you leap like three, four feet this way. And if it was on the sidewalk, you know, I would, wouldn't think twice and just a couple of little hops and jump, and I'd be over it. But 
you look down and you can't see anything, and if you hit the little icicle and you knock some icicles off, so you hear like ding, 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 and it just keeps going. Um, but you know that was that was fun. You know it felt a little bit of like danger, but that's what makes it worth it, and that's why you know I enjoy doing it is that little bit of excitement and risk and adrenaline and all that. So Dan, if anyone out there listening is going through a situation now where uh, they may have just uh, lost one of their limbs or, or it's going to be happening. Uh, what advice do you have for them? I think the hardest part is you have to embrace and accept that things will be different. Like, as, as much as I do anything and everything that I want to do, um, it's not the same. It isn't. You know, like, I, 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 it's uncomfortable at times, you know, like sitting here or whatever, like I feel pressures, you know, like I, I constantly have this thing attached to me. And if you think it's just going to be completely normal and comfortable and everything's going to go back to normal, you're, you're probably going to have a lot more anger because it just doesn't get there. But if you embrace the process and embrace that things are just different and go with it, and, and I always say it's sort of like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, it's not so bad and you and you just it's the new you you know like there was my life before I lost my leg and there's the life after I lost my leg and and now what is normal to me is is not what it was before but it's now normal to me and I and I accept that and and I think you you fight what you can't control you, you always have like this anger and frustration when you should just say I got what I got and and I'm gonna make the best of it and you'd be surprised on what you can go from there you know it's like I just heard it the other day, you know, your, your windshield's a lot bigger than your rear view mirror because you got to pay attention to what you're going forward to and not, if you stay focused on the rear view mirror, you're just going to crash. You're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, that's so. great advice. How has this impacted your life in general? Like, how have you taken the, the struggle, that uncomfort, and applied it? Because really, one of the things we talk about a lot is what you just said. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable because life really isn't supposed to be comfortable mm -hmm. why you know we shouldn't really conform or get too comfortable in anything because that we can't advance yep. right so how has the situation of losing your limb your leg changed in other areas of your life um i i mean i i shared it with you but uh gratitude uh i have an enormous sense of gratitude just for life in general. Um, I it gives you everything you need, you know. Like I feel like uh, I appreciate things that some people don't know how to appreciate, and it the simple things bring me pleasure that may not bring someone else pleasure, um, because I know that things can be way more difficult at times. And and it's not that I've had I wouldn't sit here and say I've had a really difficult life, even though some people would think I might have. But there's definitely many, many other people that have greater struggles than I've ever had to go through. And in some ways, I, I feel like they have opportunities. And, that, and that's always been my outlook, at least for the last few years, is, is any obstacle in my life, either been the fake obstacles on a Tough Mudder course or the real ones that I've faced, I've, I've really come to look at them as opportunities and more opportunities to be more grateful and more appreciative of things in my life because every challenge has been a new door that opens and every challenge has allowed me to appreciate things that I didn't have before and if you're always comfortable you just take things for granted and stuff like that so um, you know having one leg is, is, is something I'm grateful for yeah I really am awesome if you were to take out your cell phone 
and call the 80-year-old Dan, <laughs> what would you tell him? Um, well, I'm, <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. Um, I always get worried that I, I'm going to set myself up for a lot of pain down the road, you know, like, because I, I really like to push myself. Um, and I always said I wanted to be an active grandparent. Like, I, like, in my eyes, I'm like, you know, I really hope to be a grandfather someday that's involved and active. I want to be involved and active with my own children and stuff like that. So I, I, there's always that time I feel like I might push it a little too much. Um, so if I was older, I would say, where did I go too far? And, and when should I have stopped? Or when should I have maybe not tried it? you know, for so long or so hard. Um, but then I feel like I would be cutting myself short because, like I said, uh, you get hurt here and there, you get injured, you go through things, but it, you learn to adapt, you learn to adjust, and, uh, and those, those pains and those feelings are just reminders of, of awesome successes, too, that you've gone through. You strike me as someone who's not afraid to do anything. You'll go after anything. <laughs> Do I have that right? Um, Do you have your limits? Oh yeah, and in some ways it sounds like I'm like this huge risk taker and, and I'll do anything, and I guess in some ways I am, but in reality I'm really not. There's a lot, I am not a huge risk taker, especially when it comes to my family in the future, like, um, you know, with money and everything else, like I, I'm a planner, you know, like I don't really like to veer from the plan. Um, I, I see something and I want it and I come up with my plan and, and, I, and I feel very comfortable going after it and doing it because I'm not that impulsive when it comes to it, I feel like. Um, and I have my wife and my kids to keep me grounded in a lot of ways. I, my wife is almost the complete opposite of me and I'm so thankful that she is the way she is because she's my sounding board and um, I'll say things and she knows there's things that just sound stupid and crazy and I'm still going to do them. But when they're definitely bigger and than I should probably be thinking about doing. You know, she'll be quick to be like, no, you're not doing that. You know, like that enough is enough. And that helps out a lot and I need that. And I'll listen to her and stuff like that. Um, I may not say agree with her right off the bat and stuff like that, but she's good for that way. Well, look, thank you so much for sharing your story. This has been um, really time well spent. And I think a lot of people will, will learn and grow from this conversation. Uh, but I have one last question for sure. you. I ask every guest, and that is, ultimately, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, man, I wish I had some time to think about it. I, uh, I like the fact... i got to think about this for a second. It's fine. Um... I don't even know if this is going to answer it the right way, but uh, when you're, you know, when you're done, your your time is done, and you're it's years down the road. Um, one, I, I I don't want to be forgotten about. Like you know, I want my my grandkids to know who I am and all that kind of stuff, and I want the stories to be of of being that's that that was my great grandfather. That's my great, you know, like something that my family is proud of, you know, and they always um, know that I was just a good person, you know, like, I don't, it, I'm not afraid of it, but like, you know, I, I like, I hate the, when you, when you hear about dirt that comes up on people later in life and stuff like that, and, 
in every day of my life, it's like, I may make mistakes, but my intentions are usually always good. Or I, they're not usually, they, I know they are. Like, I, that's who I am. And so 80, 100, whatever years down the road, when, when hopefully my family and my, my kids' kids and grandkids and stuff like that are talking about me and my stories, it's always like with this like overwhelming proudness of that that was my great grandfather or whatever, um, and he was a good person. So that's sort of who I hope my legacy is. Awesome. Thanks. Well, you're doing it. You're living it every single day, and um, it's a pleasure to to, to meet you and Thanks. get to know you. Welcome to the American Real Family, and I can't wait to share this story with the world. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. At American Real, we're on a mission to help as many people around the world fulfill their dreams and obtain their goals. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. And speaking of podcasting, our next course will be starting soon. So if you're interested in launching your own podcast, join me at Podcast Your Passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting, where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.